He is risen, Brook family. Yeah. Man, I told Josh I'm about to get up, do the benediction, and send y'all home, man. What else? Man. Worship team, choir, so thankful for your sacrifice today. They have put in many hours in the weeks leading up to today to prepare for this. So so thankful that you helped us along as we worshiped our God. Man, it's Easter, family. Resurrection Sunday. The theme of our service to this point has been that Jesus is the one who has defied death. He is the one who conquered the grave. When we think of something or someone who's death-defying, you might think of a stunt double or, or someone who puts their life on the, live, on the line. Someone who's ready to do this crazy stunt in order to prove that they were able to do it without dying. And people may come to your mind of the likes of Houdini or Felix Bumgartner. You may remember him in 2014. He's the guy who went up to the stratosphere and went skydiving from outer space. You guys remember this guy? He jumped out and made a 24-mile skydive from the stratosphere down to Earth, traveling 128,100 feet. That's crazy. In fact, his max speed at one point he reached 843 miles per hour, which is Mach 1.25. And I don't know what that means, but that sounds really fast. (laughs) This guy is the first person in history to ever break the sound barrier without a powered engine. That is nuts. Maybe when I think of someone who's a daredevil, you think of someone like Evil Knievel, that great motorcyclist who jumped over cars and trucks and all kinds of crazy things. In fact, one of his most spectacular stunts of all took place in Las Vegas where he made the 141-foot jump over the fountains of Caesar's Palace Hotel. Now, this was so memorable because he didn't stick the landing. Actually fell to the ground, crushed and fractured his skull, and was comatose for months. He did survive. What these guys have in common, and others like them, is they want to flirt with death. They want to see how close they can get pushing the line without actually crossing it. Indeed, they are death-defying. To defy something is to openly resist it or to refuse to obey it. Family, on Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate a God, Jesus the Christ, who defied death. But unlike evil Knievel and Felix Bumgarner, Houdini, and many others, because Jesus actually stepped into the octagon with death itself. He went toe-to-toe with it and actually let himself give over to death, and he died for a time period. And then rose victoriously to defeat it, to be the ultimate defier of death. Family, that's what we're here for this morning, is to celebrate this Jesus who rose from the dead. The entirety of the Christian faith hinges, it hinges on the fact of the resurrection. And admittedly, we celebrate something that's impossible. Something that just cannot be done by the likes of humanity itself. 
But a divine intervention needs to take place. And so it did when Jesus rose from the dead. All of Christianity hinges, is dependent on the fact of the resurrection. And that's why for thousands of years, Christianity's opponents and adversaries have sought to find a way to disprove the fact of the resurrection. But family, here we are in Chicago, Illinois, the year 2022, and we are still declaring the resurrection because there has been nothing to disprove it. What I want to submit to you this morning is this very statement, that Jesus defied death just as he said he would. Jesus defied death just as he said he would. Because the events of Easter weekend came at no surprise to God. When Jesus came and became incarnate, God became human flesh, he came with this very purpose in mind, and it never surprised God. Jesus has always been in control, and he defied death just as he said he would. And the fact, not the theory, but the fact of the resurrection changes everything. This morning, we are going to explore why Jesus' defying of death matters for you and I. Y'all ready for that? In order to explore this together, let's meet, meet each other in the book of Luke chapter 24. And I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 12 after I read chapter 23, the ending of that chapter. I'm going to invite you, family, to stand with me if you're able to and meet me in the book of Luke chapter 23, verse 50. And family, we do want you to know if you're visiting with us today and if you don't own a Bible, we have a blue blue one in the chair in front of you. And if it's not directly in front, someone pass it down to someone who's looking for it. Please take that Bible home. It's our gift to you from the brook. We want you to have God's word in your hands, but be ready because it's alive. It's alive. Luke chapter 23, verse 50. This is a passage that takes place after Jesus had died on the cross and while he was still hanging there dead. Verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph... From the Jewish town of Arimathea, he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation And the Sabbath, which is a Saturday, was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, can you say early dawn? They went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, 
Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered and into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is God's word. Father in heaven, as we open your word, God, it's my prayer that you would speak through me. Oh, Lord, grant us the ability to hear you with ears to hear and to see you with eyes to see, Father. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would meet every single one who is here in person or streaming online. And I ask God that they would have an encounter with you today. For some, it might be an encounter that would lead them to faith in Jesus. And for others, that they would have an encounter that would lead them to the building up of their faith that already exists in Jesus. But in all things, God, be glorified, we pray. Speak through me, God, I pray humbly, asking that you would do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. You may take a seat, family. What a remarkable story here. We're told that it's the first day of the week, which is Sunday morning, early at dawn, before the sun rose, but after the sun rose, family. They went to the tomb, the women went there, taking spices that they had prepared. Now these women are named later on in the chapter as at least three women by name in another group. It's Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and it says, and the other women, which implies at least two other ladies, but perhaps more. These women were there heading down to the tomb of Jesus Christ with spices they had prepared. Now, the Jews did not embalm the dead, but rather they would put spices around so that while they were in their tomb, the stench of decay would not come on out. It was a way for them to honor the deceased. But of course, Jesus' death happened in the most dramatic of ways, and they were not yet prepared to give him a proper burial. So there he was in the grave, Friday, Saturday, and now the third day, Sunday. As they were walking towards the stone, towards the garden where Jesus lay, we're told in the other Gospels that the women began to wonder, how are they going to unroll this stone? They were there when he was placed in the tomb, and they knew that stone was a heavy one. And then them there, at least five women, perhaps more, knew to themselves, we don't have the physical strength to roll this heavy stone. Perhaps they had hoped that the guards would do it for them and help them out. But little did they know that the ground that they felt trembled beneath their feet as they walked to that garden was an earthquake that God had assigned. The tectonic plates of the earth began to shift beneath their feet because God had given an appointment to planet earth saying, you got to begin shaking right now because I need that stone to be removed. I need you to roll away 
the entrance, or better yet, make an exit. Because my son's coming on out there early dawn that morning. And there the women are prepared to enter into this tomb. They get there and they see this site. The stone rolled away. And it says they're perplexed because they look inside and they see nothing. They see nobody. What they see, in fact, in verse 12 is linen. The linen Jesus had been wrapped around before placed in there. You see, these women expected in that tomb to find a crucified corpse. These women expected to find some lifeless limbs, a breathless body. They expected to find the stench of decay, the power of death on display in front of them. Because we know that death has an appetite and it is not easily satisfied. But when they looked in, they found nobody. In fact, as they approached it, they found no stone over the tomb, no guards keeping watch, and no Jesus inside. It says they were perplexed, bewildered, confused, like, what's going on here? We just want to bring these spices to give our Lord his proper burial. We want to give the one that we've loved and followed for years a proper burial like he deserves because he didn't deserve to die like he died. But now he's not there. And so confusion sinks in. But what happens soon after is something they certainly didn't expect. We're told in verse 4 that two men in dazzling clothes appeared before them. Two men in dazzling clothes. Now, if you're like me, I'm thinking you guys aren't dressed for the occasion here because you don't wear a flashy outfit to a funeral. You don't get all dazzled up to go to a funeral service. But here these men were there in glowing clothes. But what we have to understand is they realize that they're actually not there for a funeral, but they're there to make a declaration. They're there to get a celebration started. So in many ways, they actually were wearing clothes fitted for the occasion. But understand something, that their clothes were dazzling, not because they had some unique kind of silk material, which the sun shone on it and just was bright and beautiful. Their clothes were dazzling because of who they were and who they were with. We're told in verse 23 that these two men were angels. Angelic beings there in dazzling clothes. That's who they were, but we have to understand who they were with. Well, none other than God himself in the presence of Almighty God in all his glory. When he tells them, hey, I need you all to go down. I need you all to get to that tomb because the women are coming and I need you to let them know what I'm doing here. And so these men show up in dazzling clothes prepared to make a celebratory announcement. And what do they tell the ladies? They tell them the first thing that I want us to understand today that makes Easter so important for us. They tell them essentially that Jesus defied death just as he said he would. Jesus defied death just as he said he would. It was always his plan to come down and die and raise from the dead. And so what the, the angels begin to do, they, they, they make three statements to them. The first of which is a question. They ask the ladies, why do you seek the living among the dead in verse 5? How about that for a question? 
Why are you seeking someone who's alive among the tombs? You see, you don't go searching for your car in your living room. You don't go looking for an airplane in your garage. You don't go looking for the living among the dead. And so here these angelic beings turn the women with a question. And then they follow the question with a statement. They say in verse 6, he is not here, but he has risen. He is not here. They're making an announcement. But he has risen. Notice the contrast with the word but. I'm no grammarian, but I know this much is that this is a contrasting conjunction where it says that one thing is one way, but something else has taken place. He is not here, but he is alive. He has raised from the dead. What these angels are telling the ladies is like, hey, this tomb was never meant to be a permanent dwelling for him. This was just a weekend business trip for Jesus. He didn't plan to make himself too comfortable here because this was a temporary lodging. He wasn't going to stay there any longer than he needed to. Like you wouldn't stay any longer in that bad hotel you've been at. You get out as soon as you can. And that's what Jesus did. And they tell the ladies, he is not here, but he is risen. They start with the question, why do you seek the living among the dead? They follow it with a statement. He is not here, but he is risen. But they say something thirdly. They give an imperative, a command. And it's this word here in verse 6. Remember. It's not a question, do you remember when? But rather a command. Hey, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. He's telling the ladies, hey, I need you to remember this. I need you to remember what he had told you. And in fact, this is wild. Six times Jesus predicted not only his death but his resurrection from Luke chapter 9 verse 22 to Luke chapter 18 verse 33. Six times he told them something to this effect, which he says in 9.22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day rise. You see, the angels are telling him, the ladies here, they're saying, hey, look, this was always according to Jesus' plan. God wasn't taken back in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas betrayed him. God wasn't surprised, family, when Jesus had an illegal trial against him. He wasn't taken by, by off guard when they drove the nails into his wrists and into his feet. After he had been scourged, none of this took God by surprise because this is why Jesus came. Jesus defied death just like he said he would. And essentially what the angels are telling the ladies is, you expected a crucified corpse, but we're telling you to expect a conquering king. You expected the lifeless limbs, but I'm telling you to keep your eye out for a living Lord. You expected a breathless body, but you've instead got a supreme Savior. You've expected the stench of decay, but instead you're going to find the aroma of life. 
you expected to see the power of death, but lo and behold is the one who defied death. This is what the angels are telling the ladies. And for that reason, they've got a reason to hope. Jesus defied death just like he said he would. And I love in verse 8, it says this, and they remembered. They're like, that's what he said. And on the one hand, you're like, why did you get this to begin with? He said he'd raise. But on the other hand, we're like, look, they had no category for this. They had no category for a, a Messiah, a deliverer, the anointed one, the Christ, to die, let alone to see him raised after three days. That was not on their radar, so they couldn't see it, although he said it not once, twice, but six times. But now that it happened, they're like, it clicked. If you were the ladies, what would you do in that moment? If you were the ladies, what if in that moment you remembered when Jesus said, he would rise? I hope your impulse is to do the very thing that they did. Because we're told here in verse 8, they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. What they did was they went back to Jerusalem, to the upper room where the apostles were, and they're like, look, you won't believe what happened. The tomb is empty. They began to declare God allowed Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of James, Joanna, and the other women to become the first to preach and proclaim the resurrection from the dead. These women whose testimony wasn't even valid in the court of Jewish law, God gave them. He gave them the voice because God doesn't go by the way our world goes. He breaks molds as he rolls stones. And here he gives the women the privilege of being the ones to say, Jesus is alive. Amen. And the apostles do at this moment what many of us probably would have done at the same time. We're told in verse 11 that these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. Didn't expect that one coming, did you? And you're like, man, look, John, you know, Bartholomew, that he is. Like, look, this is Mary Magdalene. Like, you've known her for years. You know she wouldn't make this up. This is Mary, the mother of James. Like, she's, she's not playing. Like, we would think, why don't you believe them? I'll tell you why they didn't believe them. Because they had believed once before. They had believed in Jesus and gave up everything to follow him for three and a half years. They believed when he came into Jerusalem riding that donkey as a triumphant king. They believed he was the one that was going to rescue them, having no clue that five days after he entered Jerusalem, they'd see him on a cross. And now their hopes were crushed, and they couldn't find it in them to believe because they felt like God didn't meet them in their place of belief previously. Family, you ever relate to that? You ever feel so let down by God that you don't even have it in you to even want to believe at times? You're struggling to find ways to look to him when you're like, God, but I'm hurt. God, I, I believed before. 
and I felt like you didn't come through, how can I believe again? And some of you are even here this morning or streaming online, and it took everything for you just to make this happen today because you know on the one hand you should come because it's a big day, and on the other hand you're like, but I'm hurt, and I don't know if I can even worship anymore. Suddenly the disciples don't seem to be these rude dudes, huh? Suddenly they don't seem to be these guys that are all tight about it. They actually seem to be people just like you and I. You see, for them, it was hard to believe because they understood this. Believing brings a life-altering truth into their lives. You see, Jesus-defined death is a life-altering truth. And that's a truth that cannot be believed passively, family. You just can't give cognitive assent to say, yeah, Jesus died, uh, Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. Cool. What are we going to do? Who's playing this afternoon, right? Because it's a truth that demands of your life. And the disciples knew this, which is why they're not jumping on it. They're like, hey, I believed once. I gave of my life. I gave of all that I am. And if I'm going to believe that again, I'm going to do that again. So I'm going to hold back. Family, we can't believe this passively. It is a truth that is life-altering, that changes your whole trajectory. It makes a difference when you wake up in the morning when Jesus is raised from the dead. It makes a difference when, a, uh, when you get that phone call of a diagnosis you didn't want. It makes a difference when Jesus is raised from the dead. It makes a difference when you're struggling against sin, but you know there's one who defeated it for you when Jesus rose from the dead. There's a difference that it makes when you believe in a resurrected Savior. It's a life-altering truth that can't be believed passively. But the disciples here are afraid to hope. My wife shared with me an illustration today that I thought was so fitting as a quote for this. We're fans of the Hunger Games. And in the Hunger Games, there is this evil leader called President Snow. And one thing he does is keep people captivated by fear and death. And he says this about hope. He says, hope, it is the only thing stronger than fear. A little hope is effective. A lot of hope is dangerous. You see, the disciples knew, hey, if we hope here, that's going to start leading. And if we put all our hope, we could be let down again. And so they hold back. They all hold back except for one in verse 12. We find out in the book of John is actually two. It's Peter and John. It says, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. Peter's the one who's like, man, Mary, what you're telling me, like, you better not be fooling. Like, this, this, this is real. Mary, I don't know if I can hope like this, but Peter had just enough, just enough hope to get him to leave the house that morning. Peter had just enough hope to go to the tomb that morning. Peter's had enough hope not just to walk to the tomb, but it says to run to the tomb because he had enough hope to investigate it for himself. And I believe that God brought you here today because he gave you just enough hope to leave your house this morning. He gave you just enough hope to turn on the live stream this morning because God wants you to encounter a risen Jesus. And that life-altering truth will change you forever. 
Jesus had defied death. And it says Peter walks away marveling. Now, we don't know what Peter's thinking, but he's thinking like, hey, something's going on. Something is going on. You know, when I initially planned to preach this sermon, my thought was to preach only to verse 12. But as I'm reading that and I was studying this week, I was like, but we haven't seen Jesus yet. I can't preach Easter without us seeing Jesus. So I'm going to give you Jesus this morning. We're going to take a look at him. Because what happens in the verses that follows, there are two men, a man named Cleopas and the other one unnamed, that walk from Jerusalem to a city called Emmaus, seven miles down. And they had heard that by this point, Jesus had appeared to Mary Magdalene. And they're hearing rumors of an empty tomb. And they're making this seven-mile walk confused. They're like, what do we make of these details? And while on this road, Jesus shows up and starts walking with them. But he keeps their eyes from seeing him because he wants to draw out their faith. They get to Emmaus. Jesus opens their eyes. They're like, it's you, Jesus. You're alive. And what do these guys do? They turn around and make seven-mile walk right back to Jerusalem because they got to tell the others. They get to the upper room where the disciples are gathered. There's a stir going on now. They're like, hey, are we hearing what we're hearing here? And they're beginning to talk and share about a resurrected Jesus when in verse 36, this is what we see. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood up among them and said to them, peace to you. This is wild. We're told in John 20 that the doors were locked and Jesus shows up. That's scary. And like, why does Jesus say peace to you? Because they didn't have any peace in that moment. They're probably like, what is going on? But Jesus shows up there in the upper room alive. And what Jesus is about to do is give them compelling evidence for his resurrection. He says here in verse 38, Jesus said to them, look at that in verse 38. And he said to them, them he said to them, Jesus said to them, engaging their sense of hearing, and they know that voice. Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your hearts? See my hands? See? See? Now, I don't want you to just hear my voice, but I want you to see now. Take a look. This is the face of the man you walked with for three and a half years. This is the one that you know personally and intimately. This is the one that you've lived life with. See me. I'm going to gauge your ears. I'm going to gauge your eyes. Look at my hands and my feet that it is I myself. But then Jesus says, and touch me. Touch. That sense of touch. Feel me, Jesus tells them. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus is like, look, I want you to hear my voice. I want you to see my body. But now I need you to touch and know that I have physically been risen from the dead. I am literally here. I am tangibly present. I am the resurrected Savior. Jesus defied death, and the evidence is compelling. And if that weren't enough, Jesus is like, all right, I'm going to put the icing on the cake in verse 40. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they did still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you got anything to eat? If hearing me and seeing me and touching me isn't enough, 
Hey, it's been a long weekend I've had. Could you give me something to eat here? And this has been a crazy weekend. Would you feed me? Instead, they bring him some broiled fish. Could have been bacalao. Could have been tilapia. Could have been red snapper. We don't know. But what we do know is this. When he took a bite of that fish, it didn't fall to the floor. When he swallowed that fish, it didn't pass through a spirit ghost body, but it entered the body of a physical human who is literally present. The evidence is compelling. Another part of the compelling evidence actually is the very fact that the disciples didn't believe at first. Because if they had, as many have accused them of doing, stolen the body, then why the surprise? If they expected Jesus to raise from the dead, why didn't they believe? They didn't see it coming, family. Furthermore, the ladies coming to the tomb in the garden with spices tell us that they were not there prepared to meet a friend who was alive, but to meet a friend who was dead. The fact of the unbelief of the women and of the men initially is testimony that Jesus is alive. And if that wasn't enough, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to the disciples, to his brother James, who, by the way, wrote the book of James but didn't believe in Jesus during his lifetime. Something changes between his lifetime and afterward. What is it? It's nothing like seeing your brother on a cross and a senior brother alive afterward. And then Paul says Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. All the while, all the religious leaders needed to do to squash the lie of Christianity to silence these rumors and this hysteria. All they needed to do was present a body. But there was no body. There was no body in the tomb. Jesus was alive. And the evidence is compelling, family. Jesus defied death for one more reason, family. Jesus defied death so that we can do the same. What is it to have a Savior die on a cross for us, get placed in a tomb for us, raised from the dead for us, for us to die and enter into nothingness? What is it for Jesus to go through all that, for us to die and go to hell? But Jesus died and rose from the dead so that we, when we die, can rise from the dead. This is the point of Easter weekend. This is the point of Jesus' rescue mission when he comes on Christmas. When God became a man and took on human flesh, he came so that he can be like us to rescue us. There needed to be a person, a human, to die the death that we deserved. You see, sin is a thing that is real in our souls, family. It is something that plagues all of humanity, no matter how unpopular it is to say it, as I told you on Friday, you all ain't good. I'm not good. No person is basically good because sin is at the core of our beings. And because of that, we are separated from God. And him being a just God will punish sin and pour out his wrath against us. We deserve deserve judgment. We deserve condemnation. We deserve separation from God in hell for eternity. And the only way for that to be averted 
wouldn't take a lamb, an animal sacrifice, because it's not like us. But one like us needed to come, but one that was perfect. And that's what Jesus did. He came as the perfect lamb of God who went to that cross. And at the cross, your sin and my sin was placed upon him. And God poured out his wrath on the son of God, Jesus. And that's why Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he became sin for us. He took God's wrath for us. So that when we put our faith in him, we don't have to take the punishment. It's been paid for. And if that weren't enough, in exchange, Jesus gives us his righteousness. So that when the Father sees you, though you're sinful, he knows it. He sees the perfection of his son clothe you when you put your faith in Jesus. And when you've been forgiven then, that means that you who are old become new. You've transferred from death to life. And this perishable body one day will be made imperishable, as Paul tells us. And we, when we die, will enter a grave. But when Jesus comes back, there will be a great resurrection because Jesus defied death so that we could do the same family. This is why Paul writes, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we celebrate Easter. And this is what's offered to you. You see, the past week we were driving to take our kids or pick up our kids from school. And as I was driving, all of a sudden the lights on my dashboard began to, to go on. Battery, my oil, my all kinds of lights. It was like a Christmas tree. And I know enough about cars to know that that's not a good thing. And as I drove, all of a sudden my car started to do this number. And I think, I got to get off of this highway, this street, this major street, and get into a parking lot, which I did when the car decided to go out and die on us. I went to turn it on, and sure enough, it didn't work. Opened the hood, looked at it. Don't know what I'm looking for, but you got to look at it to at least feel good about yourself. Then you slam it down like you knew that it wasn't working. And then I called the tow truck. <laughs> and then he came and put the jumper cables to it and nothing happened. And I'm like, must be the alternator. <laughs> That's a good one, right? <laughs> So he tows the truck, he tows our van over to our mechanic who lives down the block from us. Shout out to Steve Holoka, the church mechanic. And Steve said, uh, I'll take a look at it in the morning. And I'm like, cool. And in the morning, he brings it to his garage. He gives me a call. He says, hey, Eric, um, I tested the alternator and it's fully charged. It's working good. I, I tested the battery and there's power there. But I noticed something. I said, well, what'd you notice? The cord that connects the car to the battery was loose. So he just pulled out the cord. He said he cleaned it out, fastened it properly and tightened it, turned on the car and turned on. Because what he told me was the cord was close, but it wasn't fully connected. The cord was still dirty, which means it couldn't attach to the battery. 
The cord was there, but it wasn't quite connected to the power. And family, this is what Easter is telling us. This is what this is all about. Because if the resurrection of Jesus is the power of God, but we need to understand that we can be close without believing. We can maybe go to a church service. We can surround ourselves with Christians. We can have other people around us. And we can even serve God. But if you don't believe, you haven't been cleansed and cleaned by the blood of Jesus, and you aren't fastened to the power of God. But on the other hand, when you put your faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, you are cleansed. You are attached to God's power so that you can experience the power of the resurrection in your life. And that's why Paul says in, for, in Philippians 2, he says, I want to know God and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Because Jesus is coming back and he will come back and take his children with him. And that's how we get connected to the power of Resurrection Sunday. Through faith in Jesus. The resurrected Jesus met the disciples in their unbelief. He meets Mary Magdalene in her grief. He meets Thomas in his doubt. He meets Cleopas in his confusion. He meets Peter in his shame. He meets Saul in his resistance. And he can meet you in no matter what you're going through today, whether it's unbelief whether it's wearied hope, whether it's disappointment, whether it's being timid to hope and believe again, Jesus has risen from the dead to meet you in that place. And he gives you an invitation to go to the tomb and peek inside and see that he's not there. He is risen. This is an invitation to faith in Jesus. And my prayer is, if you don't know Jesus yet today, if you've never really fully given yourself over to him, if you're close, but you haven't really believed and followed him, let today be that day of salvation. When you surrender and raise that white flag and say, God, I believe in Jesus. For those who are my sisters and brothers in faith in Jesus, I pray that Jesus' defying of death would embolden your faith in such a way that you would be like the women and run and tell someone what he's done. Jesus has defied death just like he said he would. And he defied death so that you can do the same. That's what Easter is all about. And we give God all the praise because he's done it. He is risen. He is risen. Let's rise to our feet. Oh, Father God, we thank you, Lord, for our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the God-man, who came to this earth for us, oh, Lord. And, God, we pray today that you would bring someone to faith in Jesus that young person, that woman, that man who has been vacillating whether or not to fully give themselves to you. God, I pray that they would do that today, turning from their sin and saying, Jesus, I believe you died for me. God, I ask that you would move among us however you would wish to do that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite our prayer counselors and our prayer team to come forward. They're eager to pray with you all. I don't know what you've come in with today. I don't know what kind of truths 
God's word has spoken to you and that you've heard in a unique way. But they want to pray for you. We tell each other often that prayer is powerful, not because the words we speak is powerful, but prayer is powerful because the God to whom we pray is powerful. And let them pray for you and pray with you and bring your burden to God. We also want you to know this altar is open. If you want to just come forward and kneel down and say, hey, I just... I just want to have some time with God, but I, I need to cement what he's doing in my heart by coming forward. Then go ahead and do that. Ultimately, don't let this afternoon end without you responding somehow. Because Jesus defying death brings about a life-altering truth. All praise will rise to Christ our King. Let our praise arise here one more time, family. All praise to our King. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He is risen, family. He is risen, family. Yes, hallelujah. As you go out today, go out with celebration and a skip in your step because your Savior lives. Death couldn't hold him down. The Lord your God is with you and he is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. And he will rejoice over you with singing. God bless you, Brooke family. You're dismissed. We'll be back next Sunday at 10 a.m. 10 a.m. next Sunday. We'll see you for worship and at our real communities on Thursday. God bless you.